We know how many of you love the music on the Sleepy Bookshelf. Well, now you can listen to it on our sister podcast, Deep Sleep Sounds, while you sleep, work, study, or relax. Just follow the link in the show notes for Deep Sleep Sounds. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. It's always lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be continuing with To The Lighthouse. But before that, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Take a big stretch where you are and feel the tension release from your muscles. We're going to inhale through our nose for a count of four and out through our mouths for a count of eight. So breathe in for one, two, three, Four, and now out through your mouth for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Taking another deep breath in, sigh out your exhale until there's nothing left. Find a more natural rhythm of breathing while I recap on our last episode. Last time, everyone had come in for the evening and the candles were extinguished. The house fell silent and dark and remained like that for a few years up until Mrs. Ramsey's sudden death. More years pass, and the house is being kept in relative order by a local woman, Mrs. McNabb, while it is vacant. Years on again, and Prue is set to marry, but dies a year later in childbirth with her first son. All the while, the house is falling into further disrepair, nature creeping in, until World War I begins and Andrew is killed by a shell. Old Mr. Carmichael publishes a book of poetry which does quite well and Mrs. McNabb is still keeping the house as well as she might in her old age. The family never visit or write, likely finding it too hard to travel with the war still raging. Their clothes and belongings, still just as they had left them, were beginning to rot and mould. The work was too much for Mrs. McNabb to keep on top of. Rats filled the attics. Birds nested in the parlour. Rafters rotted and carpets moulded due to leaks and damps, until one day, She received word from one of the girls that they were coming and could the house be prepared. Another woman, Mrs. Bast, and her son came to help. They had builders do repairs and the garden was cleaned up. The work was tireless, but complete. When Lily Briscoe and Mr. Carmichael arrived one night by train. That's where we pick back up tonight, with Lily waking up in the old house the next morning. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To The Lighthouse. Part 3 The Lighthouse Chapter 1 
What does it mean then? What could it all mean? Lily Briscoe asked herself, wondering whether since she had been left alone, it behooved her to go to the kitchen to fetch another cup of coffee or wait here. What does it mean? A catchword that was, caught up from some book, fitting her thought loosely, for she could not, this first morning with the Ramses, contract her feelings, could only make a phrase resound to cover the blankness of her mind until these vapours had shrunk. For really, what did she feel? Come back after all these years and Mrs. Ramsay dead. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing that she could express at all. She had come late last night when it was all mysterious and dark. Now she was awake, at her old place at the breakfast table, but alone. It was very early too, not yet eight. There was this expedition. They were going to the lighthouse. Mr. Ramsay, Cam and James. They should have gone already. They had to catch the tide or something. And Cam was not ready and James was not ready. And Nancy had forgotten to order the sandwiches. And Mr. Ramsay had lost his temper and banged out of the room. What's the use of going now? He had stormed. Nancy had vanished. There he was, marching up and down the terrace in a rage. One seemed to hear doors slamming and voices calling all over the house. Now Nancy burst in and asked, looking round the room in a queer, half-dazed, half-desperate way. What does one send to the lighthouse? As if she were forcing herself to do what she despaired of ever being able to do. What does one send to the lighthouse indeed? At any other time, Lily could have suggested reasonably tea, tobacco, newspapers. But this morning, everything seemed so extraordinarily queer that a question like Nancy's, what does one send to the lighthouse, opened doors in one's mind that went banging and swinging to and fro and made one keep asking in a stupefied gape, what does one send? What does one do? Why is one sitting here after all? Sitting alone, for Nancy went out again, among the clean cups at the long table. She felt cut off from other people, and able only to go on watching, asking, wondering. The house... The place, the morning, all seemed strangers to her. She had no attachment here, she felt. No relations with it. Anything might happen. And whatever did happen, a step outside, a voice calling, It's not in the cupboard, it's on the landing, someone cried. It was a question, as if the link that usually bound things together had been cut and they floated up here, down there, off anyhow. How aimless it was, how chaotic, how unreal it was, she thought, looking at her empty coffee cup. Mrs. Ramsay dead, Andrew killed, Prue dead too. Repeated as she might, it roused no feeling in her, and we all get together in a house like this, on a morning like this, she said, looking out of the window. It was a beautiful, still day. Chapter Two Suddenly, Mr. Ramsay raised his head as he passed and looked straight at her with his distraught, wild gaze, which was yet so penetrating as if he saw you for one second, for the first time, forever, 
she pretended to drink out of her empty coffee cup so as to escape him, to escape his demand on her, to put aside a moment longer that imperious need. And he shook his head at her and strode on. Alone, she heard him say. Perished, she heard him say. And like everything else, this strange morning, the words became symbols, wrote themselves all over the grey-green walls. If only she could put them together, she felt, write them out in some sentence, then she would have got at the truth of things. Old Mr. Carmichael came padding softly in, fetched his coffee, took his cup, and made off to sit in the sun. The extraordinary unreality was frightening, but it was also exciting. Going to the lighthouse. But what does one send to the lighthouse? Perished. Alone. The grey-green light on the wall opposite. The empty places. Such were some of the parts, but how to bring them together, she asked. As if any interruption would break the frail shape she was building on the table, she turned back to the window lest Mr. Ramsay should see her. She must escape somewhere. Be alone somewhere. Suddenly she remembered, when she had sat there last ten years ago, there had been a little sprig or leaf pattern on the tablecloth, which she had looked at in a moment of revelation. There had been a problem about a foreground of a picture. Move the tree to the middle, she had said. She had never finished that picture. She would paint that picture now. It had been knocking about in her mind all these years. Where were her paints, she wondered. Her paints? Yes, she had left them in the hall last night. She would start at once. She got up quickly before Mr. Ramsay returned. She fetched herself a chair. She pitched her easel with her precise old maidish movements on the edge of the lawn, not too close to Mr. Carmichael, but close enough for his protection. Yes, it must have been precisely here that she stood ten years ago. There was the wall, the hedge, the tree. The question was of some relation between those masses. She had borne it in her mind all these years. It seemed as if the solution had come to her. She knew now what she wanted to do. But with Mr. Ramsay bearing down on her, she could do nothing. Every time he approached, he was walking up and down the terrace. Ruin approached. Chaos approached. She could not paint. She stooped. She turned. She took up this rag. She squeezed that tube. But all she did was to ward him off a moment. He made it impossible for her to do anything. For if she gave him the least chance, if he saw her disengaged a moment, looking his way a moment, he would be on her, saying as he had said last night, You find us much changed. Last night he had got up and stopped before her and said that. Silent and staring though they all had sat, the six children, whom they used to call after the kings and queens of England, the red, the fair, the wicked, the ruthless. She felt how they raged under it. Kind old Mrs. Beckwith said something sensible. It was a house full of unrelated passions she had felt all that evening. And on top of this chaos, Mr. Ramsay got up, pressed her hand and said, You will find us much changed. None of them had moved or had spoken, but had sat there as if they were forced to let him say it. Only James, certainly the sullen, scowled at the lamp, and Cam screwed her handkerchief round her finger. 
Then he reminded them that they were going to the lighthouse tomorrow. They must be ready in the hall on the stroke of half past seven. Then with his hand on the door, he stopped. He turned upon them. Did they not want to go? He demanded. Had they dared say no, he had some reason for wanting it. He would have flung himself tragically backwards into the bitter waters of despair. Such gift he had for gesture. He looked like a king in exile. Doggedly, James said yes. Cam stumbled more wretchedly. Yes, oh yes, they'd both be ready, they said. And it struck her. This was a tragedy. Not Paul's dust in the shroud, but children coerced, their spirits subdued. James was sixteen, Cam seventeen, perhaps. She'd looked round for someone who was not there, for Mrs. Ramsay, presumably. But there was only kind Mrs. Beckwith, turning over her sketches under the lamp. Then being tired, her mind still rising and falling with the sea, the taste and smell that places have long after absence possessing her, the candles wavering in her eyes. She had lost herself and gone under. It was a wonderful night, starlit. The waves sounded as they went upstairs. The moon surprised them, enormous, pale as they passed the staircase window. She had slept at once. She set her clean canvas firmly upon the easel as a barrier, frail but she hoped sufficiently substantial to ward off Mr. Ramsay and his exactingness. She did her best to look, when his back was turned, at her picture. That line there, that mass there, it was out of the question. Let him be fifty feet away. Let him not even speak to you. Let him not even see you. He permeated. He prevailed. He imposed himself. He changed everything. She could not see the colour. She could not see the lines, even with his back turned to her. She could only think, He'll be down on me in a moment, demanding something she felt she could not give him. She rejected one brush. She chose another. When would those children come? When would they all be off, she fidgeted. That man, she thought, her anger rising in her, never gave that man took She, on the other hand, would be forced to give. Mrs. Ramsay had given. Giving, giving, giving. She had died and had left all this. Really, she was angry with Mrs. Ramsay. With the brush slightly trembling in her fingers, she looked at the hedge, step, the wall. It was all Mrs. Ramsay's doing. She was dead. Here was Lily, at 44, wasting her time, unable to do a thing, standing there, playing at painting, playing at the one thing one did not play at, and it was all Mrs. Ramsay's fault. She was dead. The step where she used to sit was empty. She was dead. But why repeat this over and over again? Why be always trying to bring up some feeling she had not got? There was a kind of blasphemy in it. It was all dry, all withered, all spent. They ought not to have asked her. She ought not to have come. One can't waste one's time at 44, she thought. She hated playing at painting. A brush the one dependable thing in a world of strife, ruin, chaos that one should not play with knowingly even. She detested it, but he made her. You shan't touch your canvas, he seemed to say, bearing down on her, 
till you've given me what I want of you. Here he was, close upon her again, greedy, distraught. Well, thought Lily in despair, letting her right hand fall at her side. It would be simpler than to have it over. Surely she could imitate from recollection the glow, the rhapsody, the self-surrender she had seen on so many women's faces. On Mrs. Ramsay's, for instance, when on some occasion like this they blazed up. She could remember the look on Mrs. Ramsay's face into a rapture of sympathy, of delight in the reward they had, which, though the reason of it escaped her, eventually conferred on them the most supreme bliss of which human nature was capable. Here he was, stopped by her side. She would give him what she could. Chapter 3 She seemed to have shriveled slightly, he thought. She looked a little skimpy, wispy, but not unattractive. He liked her. There had been some talk of her marrying William Banks once, but nothing had come of it. His wife had been fond of her. He had been a little out of temper too at breakfast. And then... And then this was one of those moments when an enormous need urged him, without being conscious what it was, to approach any woman, to force them, he did not care how, his need was so great, to give him what he wanted. Sympathy. Was anybody looking after her, he said? Had she everything she wanted? Oh, thanks, everything, said Lily Briscoe, nervously. Nope, she could not do it. She ought to have floated off instantly upon some wave of sympathetic expansion. The pressure on her was tremendous, but she remained stuck. There was an awful pause. They both looked at the sea. Why, thought Mr. Ramsay, should she look at the sea when I am here? She hoped it would be calm enough for them to land at the lighthouse, she said. The lighthouse? The lighthouse, what's that got to do with it, he thought, impatiently. Instantly, with the force of some primeval gust, for really he could not restrain himself any longer, there issued from him such a groan that any other woman in the whole world would have done something, said something. All except myself, thought Lily girding at herself bitterly, who am not a woman, but a peevish, ill-tempered, dried-up old maid, presumably. Mr. Ramsay sighed to the full. He waited. Was she not going to say anything? Did she not see what he wanted from her? Then he said he had a particular reason for wanting to go to the lighthouse. His wife used to send the men things. There was a poor boy with a tuberculous hip, the lightkeeper's son. He sighed profoundly. He sighed significantly. All Lily wished was that this enormous flood of grief, this insatiable hunger for sympathy, this demand that she should surrender herself up to him entirely, And even so, he had sorrows enough to keep her supplied forever, should leave her, should be diverted. She kept looking at the house, hoping for an interruption before it swept her down in its flow. Such expeditions, said Mr. Ramsay, scraping the ground with his toe, are very painful. Still, Lily said nothing. She is a stock. She is a stone, he said to himself. They are very exhausting, he said, looking with a sickly look that nauseated her. He was acting, she felt. This great man was dramatizing himself. A 
at his beautiful hands. It was horrible. It was indecent. Would they never come, she asked, for she could not sustain this enormous weight of sorrow, support these heavy draperies of grief. He had assumed a pose of extreme decrepitude. He even tottered a little as he stood there a moment longer. Still, she could say nothing. The whole horizon seemed swept bare of objects to talk about. Could only feel amazedly as Mr. Ramsay stood there, how his gaze seemed to fall dolefully over the sunny grass and discolor it, and cast over the rubicund, drowsy, entirely contented figure of Mr. Carmichael, reading a French novel on a deck chair, a veil of crepe, as if such existence, flaunting its prosperity in a world of woe, were enough to provoke the most dismal thoughts of all. Look at him, he seemed to be saying. Look at me. And indeed, all the time he was feeling, think of me. Think of me. Ah, could that bulk only be wafted alongside of them? Lily wished. Had she only pitched her easel a yard or two closer to him? A man, any man, would staunch this effusion, would stop these lamentations. A woman, she had provoked this horror. A woman, she should have known how to deal with it. It was immensely to her discredit to stand there, dumb. One said, what did one say? Oh, Mr. Ramsay, dear Mr. Ramsay. That was what the kind old lady who sketched, Mrs. Beckwith, would have said instantly, and rightly. But no, they stood there, isolated from the rest of the world. His immense self-pity, his demand for sympathy, poured and spread itself in pools at her feet. And all she did, miserable sinner that she was, was to draw her skirts a little closer around her ankles, lest she should get wet. In complete silence, she stood there, grasping her paintbrush, heaven could never be sufficiently praised. She heard sounds in the house. James and Cam must be coming. But Mr. Ramsay, as if he knew that his time ran short, exerted upon her solitary figure the immense pressure of his concentrated woe. His age, his frailty, his desolation, when suddenly, tossing his head impatiently in his annoyance, For after all, what woman could resist him? He noticed that his bootlaces were untied. Remarkable boots they were too, Lily thought, looking down at them. Sculptured, colossal, like everything that Mr. Ramsay wore. From his frayed tie to his half-buttoned waistcoat, his own indisputably. She could see them walking to his room of their own accord, expressive in his absence of pathos, surliness, ill-temper, charm. What beautiful boots, she exclaimed. She was ashamed of herself, to praise his boots when he asked her to solace his soul, when he had shown at her his bleeding hands, his lacerated heart, and asked her to pity them, then to say cheerfully, Ah, but what beautiful boots you wear. Deserved, she knew, and she looked up expecting to get it in one of these sudden roars of ill temper, complete annihilation. Instead, Mr. Ramsay smiled. His pall, his draperies, his infirmities fell from him. Ah, yes, he said, holding his foot up for her to look at it. They were first-rate boots. There was only one man in England who could make boots like that. Boots are among the chief curses of mankind, he said. Bootmakers make it their business, he exclaimed, to cripple and torture the human foot. They are also the most obstinate and perverse of mankind. 
it had taken him the best part of his youth to get boots made as they should be made. He would have her observe, he lifted his right foot and then his left, that she had never seen boots made quite that shape before. They were made of the finest leather in the world also. Most leather was mere brown paper and cardboard. He looked complacently at his foot, still held in the air. They had reached, she felt, a sunny island where peace dwelt. Sanity reigned, and the sun forever shone. The blessed island of good boots. Her heart warmed to him. Now let me see if you can tie a knot, he said. He poo-pooed her feeble system. He showed her his own invention. Once you tied it, it never came undone. Three times he knotted her shoe. Three times he unknotted it. Why, at this completely inappropriate moment when he was stooping over her shoe, should she be so tormented with sympathy for him that, as she stooped too, the blood rushed to her face, and thinking of her callousness, she had called him a play actor. She felt her eyes swell and tingle with tears. Thus occupied, he seemed to her a figure of infinite pathos, He tied knots. He bought boots. There was no helping Mr. Ramsay on the journey he was going. But now, just as she wished to say something, could have said something, perhaps, here they were, Cam and James. They appeared on the terrace. They came, lagging side by side, a serious, melancholy couple. But why was it like that that they came? She could not help feeling annoyed with them. They might have come more cheerfully. They might have given him what, now that they were off, she would have not had the chance of giving him. For she felt a sudden emptiness, a frustration. Her feeling had come too late. There it was, ready, but he no longer needed it. He'd become a very distinguished elderly man, who had no need of her whatsoever. She felt snubbed. He slung a knapsack round his shoulders. He shared out the parcels. There were a number of them, ill-tied in brown paper. He sent Cam for a cloak. He had all the appearance of a leader making ready for an expedition. Then, wheeling about, he led the way with his firm military tread in those wonderful boots, carrying brown paper parcels down the path, his children following him. They looked, she thought, as if fate had devoted them to some stern enterprise and they went to it, still young enough to be drawn acquiescent in their father's wake, obediently, but with a pallor in their eyes which made her feel that they suffered something beyond their years in silence. So they passed the edge of the lawn, and it seemed to Lily that she watched a procession go, drawn on by some stress of common feeling, which made it, faltering and flagging as it was, a little company bound together and strangely impressive to her. Politely, But very distantly, Mr. Ramsay raised his hand and saluted her as they passed. But what a face, she thought, immediately finding the sympathy which she had not been asked to give, troubling her for expression. What had made it like that? Thinking night after night, she supposed, about the reality of kitchen tables, she added remembering the symbol which her vagueness as to what Mr. Ramsay did think about Andrew had given her. He'd been killed by the splinter of a shell instantly, she bethought her. The kitchen table was something visionary, austere, something bare, hard, not ornamental. There was no colour to it, It was all edges and angles. It was uncompromisingly plain. 
but Mr. Ramsay kept always his eyes fixed upon it, never allowed himself to be distracted or deluded until his face became worn too, an ascetic, and partook of this unornamented beauty which so deeply impressed her. Then she recalled, standing where he had left her, holding her brush. Worries had fretted it, not so nobly. He must have had his doubts about that table, she supposed. Whether the table was a real table, whether it was worth the time he gave to it, whether he was able, after all, to find it. He had doubts, she felt, or he would have asked less of people. That was what they talked about late at night sometimes, she suspected. And then the next day, Mrs. Ramsay looked tired, and Lily flew into a rage with him over some absurd little thing. But now he had nobody to talk to about that table, or his boots, or his knots. And he was like a lion, seeking whom he could devour. And his face had that touch of desperation, of exaggeration in it which alarmed her and made her pull her skirts about her. And then, she recalled, there was that sudden revivification, that sudden flare when she praised his boots, that sudden recovery of vitality and interest in ordinary human things, which too passed and changed, for he was always changing and hid nothing into that other final phase which was new to her and had, she owned, made herself ashamed of her own irritability, when it seemed as if he had shed worries and ambitions and the hope of sympathy and the desire for praise. He had entered some other region, was drawn on as if by curiosity in dumb colloquy, whether with himself or another the head of that little procession out of one's range. Extraordinary face. The gate banged. Chapter 4 So they're gone, she thought, sighing with relief and disappointment. Her sympathy seemed to be cast back on her, like a bramble sprung across her face. She felt curiously divided, as if one part of her were drawn out there. It was a still day, hazy. The lighthouse looked this morning at an immense distance. The other had fixed itself, doggedly, solidly here on the lawn. She saw her canvas as if it had floated up and placed itself, white and uncompromising, directly before her. It seemed to rebuke her with its cold stare for all this hurry and agitation, this folly and waste of emotion. It drastically recalled her and spread through her mind, first a peace, as her disorderly sensations. He had gone and she had been so sorry for him, and she had said nothing, trooped off the field. And then, emptiness. She looked blankly at the canvas, with its uncompromising white stare. From the canvas to the garden, there was something. She stood screwing up her little eyes in her small, puckered face. Something she remembered in the relations of those lines, cutting across, slicing down, and in the mass of the hedge with its green cave of blues and browns, which had stayed in her mind, which had tied a knot in her mind, so that odds and ends of time, involuntarily, as she walked along the Brompton Road, as she brushed her hair, she found herself painting that picture, passing her eye over it, and untying the knot in imagination. But there was all the difference in the world between this planning airily away from the canvas and actually taking her brush and making the mark. She'd taken the wrong brush in her agitation at Mr. Ramsay's presence, 
and her easel rammed into the earth so nervously was at the wrong angle. Now that she had that right, and in doing so, had subdued the impertinences and irrelevances that plucked her attention and made her remember how she was such and such a person and had such and such relations to people, she took her hand and raised her brush. For a moment, it stayed, trembling in a painful but exciting ecstasy in the air. Where to begin? That was the question at what point to make the first mark. One line placed on the canvas committed her to innumerable risks, to frequent and irrevocable decisions. All that in idea seemed simple, became in practice immediately complex, as the waves shaped themselves symmetrically from the cliff top, but to the swimmer among them, divided by steep gulfs and foaming crests. Still, the risk must be run, the mark made. With a curious physical sensation, as if she were urged forward and at the same time must hold herself back, she made her first, quick, decisive stroke. The brush descended. It flickered brown over the white canvas. It left a running mark. The second time she did it, a third time, and so pausing and so flickering, she attained a dancing, rhythmical movement as if the pauses were one part of the rhythm and the strokes another, and all were related. And so lightly and swiftly pausing, striking, she scored her canvas with brown, running, nervous lines, which had no sooner settled there than they enclosed. She felt it looming out at her, a space. Down in the hollow of one wave, she saw the next wave towering higher and higher above her, for what could be more formidable than that space. Here she was again, she thought, stepping back to look at it, drawn out of gossip, out of living, out of community with people into the presence of this formidable ancient enemy of hers, this other thing, this truth, this reality suddenly lay hands on her, emerged stark at the back of appearances and commanded her attention. She was half unwilling, half reluctant. Why always be drawn out and hailed away? Why not left in peace to talk to Mr. Carmichael on the lawn? It was an exacting form of intercourse anyhow. Other worshipful objects were content with worship. Men, women, God, all let one kneel prostrate. But this form, were it only the shape of a white lampshade looming on a wicker table, roused one to perpetual combat, challenged one to a fight in which one was bound to be worsted. Anyway... It was in her nature, or in her sex, she did not know which, before she exchanged the fluidity of life for the concentration of painting. She had a few moments of nakedness when she seemed like an unborn soul, a soul reft of body, hesitating on some windy pinnacle and exposed without protection to all the blasts of doubt. Why then did she do it? She looked at the canvas, lightly scored with running lines. It would be hung in the servants' bedrooms. It would be rolled up and stuffed under a sofa. What was the good of doing it then? She heard some voice saying she couldn't paint, saying she couldn't create, as if she were caught up in one of those habitual currents in which, after a certain time, experience forms in the mind so that one repeats the words without being aware any longer who originally spoke them. Can't paint, 
can't write, she murmured monotonously, anxiously considering what her plan of attack should be. For the mass loomed before her. It protruded. She felt it pressing on her eyeballs. Then, as if some juice necessary for the lubrication of her faculties was spontaneously squirted, she began precariously dipping among the blues and umbers, moving her brush hither and thither. But it was now heavier and went slower, as if it had fallen in with some rhythm which was dictated to her. She kept looking at the hedge, at the canvas, by what she-rhythm was strong enough to bear her along with it on its current. Certainly, she was losing consciousness of outer things, and as she lost consciousness of outer things, and her name, and personality, and her appearance, and whether Mr. Carmichael was there or not, her mind kept throwing up from its depths scenes and names and sayings and memories and ideas like a fountain spurting over that glaring, hideously difficult white space while she modelled it with greens and blues. Charles Tansley used to say that, she remembered. Women can't paint, can't write. Coming up behind her, he had stood close by her. A thing she hated, she painted her on this very spot. Shag tobacco, he said. Five pence an ounce, parading his poverty, his principles. But the war had drawn the sting of her femininity. Poor devils, one thought. Poor devils of both sexes. He was always carrying a book about under his arm. A purple book. He worked. He sat, she remembered, working in a blaze of sun. At dinner, he would sit right in the middle of the view. But after all, she reflected, there was the scene on the beach. One must remember that. It was a windy morning. They had all gone down to the beach. Mrs. Ramsay sat down and wrote letters by a rock. She wrote and wrote. Oh, she said, looking up at something floating in the sea. Is it a lobster pot? Is it an upturned boat? She was so short-sighted that she could not see. And then Charles Tansley became as nice as he could possibly be. He began playing ducks and drakes. They chose little flat black stones and sent them skipping over the waves. Every now and then, Mrs. Ramsay looked up over her spectacles and laughed at them. What they said she could not remember, but only she and Charles throwing stones and getting on very well all of a sudden, and Mrs. Ramsay watching them. She was highly conscious of that. Mrs. Ramsay, she thought, stepping back and screwing up her eyes, must have altered the design a good deal when she was sitting on the step with James. There must have been a shadow. When she thought of herself and Charles throwing ducks and drakes and of the whole scene on the beach, it seemed to depend somehow upon Mrs. Ramsay sitting under the rock with a pad on her knee, writing letters. She wrote innumerable letters, and sometimes the wind took them and she and Charles just saved a page from the sea. But what a power was in the human soul, she thought. That woman sitting there writing under the rock resolved everything into simplicity, made these angers, irritations fall off like old rags. She brought together this and that, and then this, and so made out of that miserable stillness and spite, she and Charles squabbling, sparring had been silly and spiteful. Something, this scene on the beach, for example, this moment of friendship and liking, which survived after all these years complete, 
so that she dipped into it to refashion her memory of him. And there it stayed in the mind, affecting one almost like a work of art. Like a work of art, she repeated, looking from her canvas to the drawing room steps and back again. She must rest for a moment. And resting, looking from one to the other, vaguely, the old question which traversed the sky of the soul perpetually, the vast, the general question which was apt to particularize itself at such moments as these, when she released faculties that had been on the strain, stood over her, paused over her, darkened over her. What is the meaning of life? That was all. A simple question, one that tended to close in on one with years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark, And here was one. This, that, and the other. Herself and Charles Tansley in the breaking wave. Mrs. Ramsay bringing them together. Mrs. Ramsay saying, life stands still here. And Mrs. Ramsay making of the moment something permanent As in another sphere, Lily herself tried to make of the moment something permanent. This was the nature of a revelation. In the midst of chaos, there was shape. This eternal passing and flowing. She looked at the clouds going and the leaves shaking. Was struck into stability. Life stand still here, Mrs. Ramsey said. Mrs. Ramsay. Mrs. Ramsay, she repeated. She owed it all to her. All was silent. Nobody seemed yet to be stirring in the house. She looked at it there, sleeping in the early sunlight, with its windows green and blue with the reflected leaves. The faint thought she was thinking of Mrs. Ramsay seemed in consonance with this quiet house, this smoke, this fine early morning air, faint and unreal, it was amazingly pure and exciting. She hoped nobody would open the window or come out of the house, but that she might be left alone to go on thinking, to go on painting. She turned to her canvas, but impelled by some curiosity, driven by the discomfort of the sympathy which she held undischarged, she walked a pace or so to the end of the lawn to see whether, down there on the beach, she could see that little company sailing. Down there, among the little boats which floated, some with their sails furled, some slowly it was very calm moving away. There was one rather apart from the others. The sail was even now being hoisted. She decided that there, in that very distant and entirely silent little boat, Mr. Ramsay was sitting with Cam and James. Now they had got the sail up. Now, after a little flagging and silence, She watched the boat take its way with deliberation past the other boats, out to sea.